This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Due to the graphic nature of this case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of sex, torture, violence, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Mrs. Carpenter, Hannah Dobbs, the woman accused of murdering Matilda Hacker and disposing of her body in the coal cellar of 4 Euston Square, sits before you right now. Do you recall her ever visiting your inn during August of 1877? I do, yes. Did she have a gentleman with her at the time? She did. Did Miss Dobbs and this gentleman keep the same quarters? Yes, I remember them well. He was dressed in a light suit. They sat in the smoking room before bed sharing biscuits. They later shared a bed. Can you point to the man? Of course. He's sitting right there. Order! Order! This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This is our final episode on the 4 Houston Square mystery. Last week, we covered the discovery of a rotting corpse in the coal cellar of a London boarding house and the investigation that identified the victim as Matilda Hacker. This week, we'll cover the murder trial of Hannah Dobbs, the maid of 4 Euston Square, who was found in possession of several of Matilda Hacker's personal effects. The scandals revealed by the trial would prove that 4 Euston Square and all of its residents were not nearly as innocent as they once seemed. 
On the morning of May 9, 1879, a woman's mangled corpse was found in the cellar of the boarding house at 4 Euston Square in London. Unable to identify the body, detectives scrambled for clues as the gruesome details of the murder made headlines across the country. Finally, after days of public fear, curiosity, and outrage, the victim was identified. Her name was Matilda Hacker, an eccentric, wealthy, elderly woman who had spent the previous few years evading her debtors. With her identity now public, theories of exactly how the 60-something-year-old woman met her untimely demise began to spread like wildfire. The London Evening Standard reported the following. Miss Hacker must have been first struck by a heavy instrument which doubtless drew a quantity of blood. The half-lifeless body was carried down to the cellar where it was strangled by the rope found on the neck of the victim. Or the rope was attached immediately after the first blow was struck and she was dragged down the stairs and thrown into the cellar. The report also mentioned that acid was likely thrown on the corpse. The source and accuracy of the reports were unclear, but in their wake, new information was brought to the police. This time from a neighbor of the Bastendorfs named Mrs. Talbert. She lived a stone's throw away at 5 Euston Square. Mrs. Talbert claimed that on a Sunday afternoon in the fall of 1877, she was sitting in her front room when she heard a scream across the square. She described it as drawn out and unnatural. By the time she stood to locate its source, the scream had disappeared. Had it not been for the stories in the papers and the massive crowds outside of her house years later, the memory might not have resurfaced at all. Well, Mrs. Talbert's story was a big break for detectives. They now had a semblance of a timeline. If the scream did, in fact, belong to Matilda Hacker, it would place her death two years prior to the discovery of the body, well, most likely on Sunday, October 14, 1877, a time when Hannah Dobbs was employed as the maid at 4 Euston Square. Hannah Dobbs was first introduced to the case when her parents contacted detectives thinking that she might actually be the victim. But Hannah Dobbs wasn't dead at all. Her parents hadn't heard from her because she was in jail, serving time for petty theft. It was time to investigate the maid further. Well, luckily for Inspector Charles Hagen, Hannah Dobbs was not a flight risk. She was locked up already, after all. On May 1879, Hagen arranged for Hannah Dobbs to view Matilda Hacker's body at the St. Pancras Mortuary. Here she is. What are your impressions, Miss Dobbs? It's not a fate I would wish on my worst enemy. Do you recognize any of the items or belongings? Mm-hmm. Oh. The fabric with the diamond pattern, it's carpet from one of the landings of Mr. Bassendorf's house. And the lace shawl, it looks lighter than the one that Miss Hacker had worn, but I do remember her owning one. Thank you. Have you found the person responsible for the crime? We've got some suspects. Shall I walk you out? Inspector Hagen viewed Hannah Dobbs' behavior in the mortuary as especially strange. Though dressed in black, fully costumed to mourn, the woman seemed unmoved. If Hagen had been suspicious of Hannah Dobbs before, he was now convinced that she was the killer he was after. It wasn't long before the criminal trial of Hannah Dobbs would begin. But first, 
the pre-trial. Hannah Dobbs, you stand charged of the willful murder of Miss Matilda Hacker. What do you plead? No, not me. At the trial, Zeverine Bastendorf, the man who owned 4 Euston Square, was represented by Mr. Jones, while Hannah Dobbs showed up without legal counsel. The prosecution was led by a lawyer named Mr. Poland. As the proceedings began, Mr. Poland launched into his opening statement. Your Honor, Matilda Hacker was last seen alive on the 5th of October, 1877. The last anybody heard from her was on the 10th of October, when she wrote a letter to her property manager in Canterbury, Kent. At the time of Miss Hacker's tragic death, Hannah Dobbs was the maid of 4 Euston Square. And after Matilda Hacker's mysterious disappearance from the boarding house, it was Miss Dobbs who told Mary Bastendorf, the owner of 4 Euston Square, that Miss Hacker decided to leave. Mrs. Bastendorf did not see Miss Hacker leave the house, nor did anyone else. As for the cellar where Matilda Hacker's body was so carelessly disposed of, Hannah Dobbs was the only person in the house that made a habit of going down there at all. So, how did Hannah Dobbs, the only person to claim Miss Hacker's whereabouts in the final days before her disappearance, also happen to come into possession of Miss Hacker's things? Well, we know that she is a thief. She is already a prisoner for crimes unrelated to this case. But, I expect the facts will show whether the murder was due to an escalation that occurred after the thief got caught, or if it was purely her taste for blood. Hannah Dobbs killed Matilda Hacker. The prosecution was allowed one witness, which was unusual for a pretrial. It was even more unusual considering that Hannah Dobbs was without representation, but Mary Bastendorf took the stand anyway. Mrs. Bastendorf, what do you recall of Matilda Hacker, perhaps better known to you as Miss Hewish? She was a tenant in our home, in the front room of the second floor. She paid 12 shillings a week. Otherwise, I don't recall much. I only saw her twice during her stay, both times on her way to church. How long did Miss Hacker stay with you? By our records, three weeks. But there are no dates and I don't remember off the top of my head. It's a busy house with many tenants, you understand. Were there other tenants whose stays may have overlapped? Only one, Mr. Riggenbach. Before Hannah Dobbs told you of Miss Hacker's departure, did you have any indication that Miss Hacker had any intention to leave? I did not. When did you return to Miss Hacker's room after she left? Maybe two days. The glass lamp I had purchased was shattered, and I found a stain on the carpet that someone attempted to clean. I scolded Hannah at the time. If I had known about the mess, I would have charged Miss Hacker for the damages. I've since been told the stain was blood. Thank you. Did you see the body that was found in the cellar? I was only told of it. I wasn't in the habit of visiting the cellar. That was not true of Miss Dobbs, correct? Correct. She visited the cellar frequently. Thank you, Mrs. Bastendorf. That is all. The prosecution rests. Ms. Dobbs, seeing as you have no lawyer present, do you yourself have any questions to ask Mrs. Bastendorf? No. I have no questions to ask of Mrs. Bastendorf. Not now. I'll wait until Mr. Bastendorf is also present to ask my questions. We're finished here for today. It was clear that Hannah Dobbs was upset by the accusations made by her former boss. Though she bit her tongue in court, Hannah sought revenge outside. 
From prison, she began spreading rumors about another tenant at 4 Euston Square, Mr. Finlay. Mr. Finlay's stay at 4 Euston Square preceded Matilda Hacker's. He was a wealthy American who, according to Hannah Dobbs, owned a seven-chamber loaded revolver. Hannah spread rumors that he had once killed a man, though she never explained the circumstances. She also claimed that he had offered her 50 pounds to leave with him for America, where he had presumably returned to after disappearing from 4 Euston Square. Officials feared that the salacious rumors would affect the public's perception of the case, but there was little time to respond. The coroner's trial was set for May 16th, and there would soon be plenty more scandal to be had. Once again, Mary Bastendorf took the stand. Mrs. Bastendorf, during Hannah Dobbs' employment at 4 Euston Square, did she ever take a vacation? Yes, a few short trips to visit her family. On one occasion, it was longer. A month, I think? Mrs. Bastendorf, were you aware that on trips to visit her family, Hannah Dobbs was keeping company with a man she referred to as Mr. Bastendorf? Yes. Were you aware that Hannah was the mother of Peter's child? What? No, just that they had become engaged. Like the rest of the courtroom, Mary Bastendorf was shocked to learn that her former maid had carried her brother-in-law's child. But Peter Bastendorf wasn't the only man in Hannah Dobbs' life. Coming up, Hannah Dobbs' relationship with the Bastendorfs is revealed to be more complicated than anyone could have imagined. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. And now, back to the story. By May 1879, investigators had come to view Hannah Dobbs, the former maid of 4 Euston Square, as the prime suspect in the murder of Matilda Hacker. But during the coroner's trial, it was revealed that Hannah Dobbs was not only engaged to Peter Bastendorf, the brother of her employer, but, but that she had also carried his child. The news of the baby seemed to uproot Mary Bastendorf. Her story began to show cracks as her answers became more terse and contradictory. Despite Hannah Dobbs' relationship to Mary Bastendorf's brother-in-law, it was evident that Mary had no intention of coming to Hannah's defense. Mrs. Bastendorf, regarding the disappearance of Matilda Hacker from your boarding house, how would Miss Hacker leave the house without you knowing or seeing? I was otherwise engaged. You felt no surprise at her departure? No, 
I did not expect her to stay long. And when Hannah Dobbs visited her family in Biddeford, who carried out the chores of the house? I did. You had stated that you weren't in the habit of entering the coal cellar. How about when Miss Dobbs was away? Well, yes, then, sure. But I saw nothing that I didn't mistake for rubbish. Hannah often tossed things down there to avoid properly cleaning. Mary Bastendorf's testimony only made things more confusing. Well, Peter Bastendorf took the stand next. The Illustrated Police News reported that, upon entering the witness box, he looked at Hannah Dobbs and a grin stole over his face. On the other hand, Hannah Dobbs couldn't make eye contact with him. Peter Bastendorf was 22 years old and had been in London for four years. Like his brother Ziverine, he was also a woodworker. His story, however, didn't exactly line up. How long did you keep company with Hannah Dobbs? Uh, about two years. I met her when she was in the service of my brother. Were you ever engaged to Hannah Dobbs? No. Just kept company, that's all. You do not know, then, that a child was born and you might be the parent? I know nothing of that. Did you visit with her family in the country? Uh, on one occasion. Are you aware of why she left for Euston Square? I believe she was accused of stealing a tenant's belongings. And did you keep company with her after she left? Once because she was sick. Once because she was not. Have you shared letters with her while she's been in prison? <laughs> Some, not many. Did you know Matilda Hacker? No. Did Hannah Dobbs mention her at all? <laughs> Never. Did you ever enter the coal cellar? <laughs> Never. <laughs> Don't laugh, sir. Don't smile. Just answer the questions. Order. It was unclear whether Peter Bastendorf's laughter was a nervous tick or something more menacing. Either way, it only served to raise suspicions. Peter Bastendorf's testimony was followed by a pair of medical specialists, Dr. Pepper and Dr. Davis. They dispelled previous claims that Matilda Hacker had somehow suffered a blow to the head. They also confirmed that the chloride of lime used by Joseph Savage had not contaminated the remains. Otherwise, they had very little of substance to contribute. It was their opinion that Matilda Hacker could have been strangled or that she might have hanged herself, but it was impossible to say which based on the evidence. The only thing they were willing to say definitively was that the stain found in Matilda Hacker's room was blood. Even then, they couldn't determine whether the blood was from a human or an animal. As the coroner's trial came to a close in late May 1879, the judge summoned the jury to share its decision. Has a verdict been reached? Yes. We find the remains found in the cellar of 4 Euston Square were those of Miss Hacker, and that there was a strong belief that she has been murdered by some person or persons unknown. Do you say that the murder was by strangulation? No, we do not say that. That is all the verdict you have to give? Yes. The coroner's trial held to determine the cause of Matilda's death was over. Hannah Dobbs left the courthouse and was escorted to the coach that would take her back to prison. As she climbed inside, she smiled at the crowds of people attempting to get a glimpse of her. She seemed to enjoy her newfound fame, despite knowing that a criminal trial that would determine her guilt or innocence loomed on the horizon. Well, Hannah Dobbs was not the first maid to stand trial for murder. 
Earlier that year, a maid named Kate Webster had drunkenly pushed her employer, Julia Thomas, down the stairs. When Julia Thomas began to scream, the maid strangled her to death. Six months prior to that, a tenant at the Burton Crescent boarding house came home to find their landlady, Mrs. Burton, dead. Her throat had been cut open. The prime suspect? The maid of the house, Mary Ann Donovan. The stories may have been morbidly thrilling for all of the maids working long, arduous hours to appease their mistresses, representing a daydream they never dared to act out. But for England's upper class, the murders made them question whether they were safe in their own homes. And unfortunately for Hannah Dobbs, this pre-existing narrative may have ruined her chances at a fair trial. As far as the public was concerned, she was just one more spurned maid turned killer. The official criminal trial against Hannah Dobbs began on June 30th, 1879, at the Old Bailey Criminal Courthouse. This time, the prosecution was led by the Attorney General, Mr. A.L. Smith. The defense was led by one Mr. Meade. The judge was the Honorable Justice Hawkins. It was the Attorney General's intention to prove that on a Sunday in October 1877, Hannah Dobbs and Matilda Hacker were the only adults at 4 Euston Square, and on that day, Matilda Hacker was killed by a blow to the back of the neck. Dr. Davis took the stand. He testified once more that he was unable to judge the cause of death. If Matilda Hacker had been strangled, there would have been blood, likely from the eyes, mouth, and nose, but not of the quantity suggested by the stain found in Matilda's room. There was no indication of strangulation, at least in his professional opinion. Next, Dr. Pepper took the stand. He said that the marks around the neck of the corpse were more consistent with a hanging or of the body being dragged by a cord than with strangulation. Mr. W. Luck, an analytical chemist, told the court that his analysis of the internal organs found no trace of any poison. Once again, this testimony allowed for the possibility that this wasn't a murder at all, but a suicide. For the first time, things were looking up for Hannah Dobbs. Well, the next person to take the stand was Francis Riggenbach, a German sugar merchant who had been the only other tenant at Fort Euston Square during Matilda Hacker's stay. Mr. Riggenbach, do you have any recollection of Matilda Hacker, the woman who occupied the room above you? I met a lady in the hall on one occasion in October 1877, but I couldn't say that it was Miss Hacker. On most days, I left around 9 o'clock in the morning, and I didn't return until 9 in the evening. What do you recall of October 14, 1877, the Sunday that Matilda Hacker was allegedly murdered? I remember it because it was the day of the French elections. I visited a friend in Torrington Square. I left around noon, returned home for a few minutes at around 4 o'clock, and returned home for the night around 11. Was there any sense of disturbance or violence that you can recall? No. Thank you, sir. No further questions. Mary Bastendorf maintained her story. She only ever saw Matilda Hacker twice. She had no idea how her body ended up in the cellar. Mary only found out that Matilda Hacker left the boarding house when Hannah Dobbs told her about the mysterious departure. And about two days after that, Mary Bastendorf entered Matilda's room to find a broken glass lamp and a large stain on the carpet. She never once saw the body. 
Mrs. Bastendorf, did Hannah Dobbs take any vacation after Miss Hacker allegedly left the house? Yes, just after. She left for three days to visit her family in Biddeford. Hannah told me that her uncle had died and left her a watch and some money. Did you see Miss Dobbs in possession of such a watch? I did. Was it this watch? The watch belonging to Matilda Hacker? I can't be certain, but it looks very similar. On October 14th, 1877, do you recall the whereabouts of the members of your family? My husband was hunting in the Kent Marshes. He didn't return until late. I was visiting my sister in North London. Hannah Dobbs took the children to be photographed in Hampstead at some point around then, but I cannot be certain of the day. Whether or not Hannah Dobbs had taken the children to be photographed on October 14th, Mary's testimony meant that Bastendorf children were in Hannah Dobbs' care on the day she was supposed to have murdered Matilda Hacker. Which would have made pulling off a murder difficult. Uh, indeed. Mary's husband, Zeverine Bastendorf, took the stand next. His testimony was eagerly awaited by all and proved to only further confuse the case. Mr. Bastendorf, what can you recall of Matilda Hacker? I recall she was fond of reading. The Book of Dreams, in particular. Sir, you previously testified to never seeing Matilda Hacker. Yes. Well, I meant I wasn't in the habit of seeing the tenants. Can you recall a tenant by the name of Mr. Findlay? Yes. He left in August, 1877. I know he owned a small American revolver, but I know very little else. Zeverine testified that on the day in question, he arrived home late, around 11 o'clock from his hunting trip. He returned to find his wife, Mary, in the kitchen, having just returned from the trip with her sister. Both Zeverine and Mary denied having seen Hannah Dobbs after arriving home. After their testimonies came cross-examination from the prosecution. What were the duties of Hannah Dobbs? She provided all of the requirements for the tenants, and I might send her on the occasional errand. Can you be certain that the stain on the carpet was not made during Matilda Hacker's three-week stay with you? I can only say that it wasn't there prior to Matilda Hacker's arrival, and I only noticed the stain after she left. And you swear to the court that you never entered the tenants' rooms during their stays? No, I never went into Miss Hacker's room. It was not my place to look after the tenants. Interesting. I should think it was precisely your place. Is it not common practice for tenants to give notice of leaving? Not in furnished apartments. At least, I did not make it a rule. May I interrupt to ask a question myself? Of, of course, Your Honor. What kind of landlady are you that you take no notice of your guests? It appears to me that you are avoiding the questions being asked of you, and I won't stand for any more of it. But Mary Bastendorf did not change her testimony. She seemed fine with people thinking she was an inattentive landlady. Or maybe it was just preferable to the alternative. Regardless, she stepped down, and it was now time for Zeverine Bastendorf to be cross-examined. Mr. Bastendorf, we've heard testimony of Hannah Dobbs' relationship with your brother, Peter Bastendorf. Correct. Were you in the habit of giving Miss Dobbs gifts? I only ever gave her a cabinet, worth no more than two shillings and six pence. Did Hannah Dobbs ever lend you any money? Yes. Three pounds in the year 1877. I returned the money the same week. So your maid lent you nearly a quarter of her annual salary? 
that seems to suggest that you were on better terms than you've let on. Was it then the case that you too kept company with Miss Dobbs? No, never. Really? I have it on good authority that you did. Standing before the court, Zeverine Bastendorf seemed taken aback. Despite the accusations, he insisted that his relationship with his maid had been strictly professional, but he would not have the last word on the matter. Coming up, Hannah Dobbs tells her side of the story. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the story. The criminal trial of Hannah Dobbs for the murder of Matilda Hacker began in late June of 1879. Zeverine Bastendorf, the owner of the boarding house where Hannah worked, was accused of having an affair with her. He denied everything. So you've never kept company with Miss Dobbs. Are you familiar with the Prince's Hotel on Argyle Street? I'm not familiar with that hotel, no. So you were never there with Miss Dobbs? No. Did you ever visit an inn in Red Hill with Miss Dobbs? No. I've never spent any extended time with her. So you gave her gifts because she kept company with your brother? No. I only liked her well enough for that reason. You didn't give Hannah Dobbs a gold watch? No. You didn't give her a gold watch and chain and tell Miss Dobbs, if asked, to say that it was from her uncle? And that you did not wish your wife to find out? No. Nor a gold eyeglass? No. No matter how liberally the defense was speculating, their accusations cast a shadow of guilt over Zeverine Bastendorf. The case was heating up. It had already had murder, theft, and sex. But now, there was betrayal. After planting that seed, the defense started to attack Zeverine Bastendorf's character. They accused him of regularly drinking and gambling on the Sabbath. Zeverine admitted to both, but dismissed them as the bad habits he wanted to give up. His testimony quickly started to fall apart. Do you recall Hannah Dobbs joining you on a weekend trip, along with one or two of your children? I would need to think harder on that matter. How long might you need? Longer. Why are there pages torn from the rent book of poor Euston Square? I could not say. You mentioned that Mr. Finlay kept a gun in your house, but you failed to mention that you also owned a gun, correct? I had a revolver in 1876, but I sold it in the same year. Suspicion around Zeverine Bastendorf's involvement in the murder was high, 
but the landlord still had an alibi for the weekend that Matilda Hacker was presumed to be murdered. Zeverine's friends, John Richards and Louis Whiffling, confirmed in court that he was away hunting with them on the dates in question. Next, it was Peter Bastendorf's turn to be cross-examined. Have you ever heard rumors of a relationship between Severine and Hannah Dobbs? I heard about it in a pub. Did you have any suspicions regarding their relationship? I did. And did you ever confront either of them about your suspicions? Both of them. Several times. No further questions. Peter Bastendorf took the stand just long enough to validate allegations that his brother had also been romantically involved with Hannah Dobbs. From there, the case became a volley of hearsay and speculation. Guards from Westminster Prison took the stand with stories of their own. They testified that Hannah had told them that Zeverine Bastendorf was the one who gave Hannah Dobbs Matilda Hacker's watch. He gave it to her in order to pay off the debt that he owed her, although the testimony would have been more intriguing if it wasn't so secondhand. Inspector Hagen took the stand himself and told the court that in an interview, Hannah Dobbs had told him that she was away in Hampstead with the children when Matilda Hacker was killed, and that Mary Bastendorf had told Hannah Dobbs that Matilda Hacker had left for Euston Square, not the other way around. The case was quickly becoming a quagmire. Everyone's stories seemed to contradict the others, and on top of that, the medical examiners weren't even certain Matilda Hacker's death was a murder. As such, the defense asked for the case to be dismissed due to lack of evidence. If there wasn't proof of a murder, Hannah Dobbs shouldn't be held responsible for one. The motion was denied by the judge. He maintained that if it wasn't a murder, the body would not have been stored in the coal cellar. The defense and the prosecution then turned their attention to the jury. Does the defense have their closing statement? Yes, Your Honor. The only evidence found of a murder was a rope tied twice around the neck. The wounds on the body were more consistent with a hanging than strangulation. Could it not be the case that an opportunistic person might have happened upon a dead body and taken the valuables? That is theft not murder. And if a murder had occurred in the house, how could Hannah Dobbs have committed such a crime while she was caring for the children? And if she was guilty of such a horrendous crime, why would she remain at the location of her crime for so long? Yes, Hannah Dobbs was found in possession of Matilda Hacker's property. But how did Hannah Dobbs receive those items? We've shown that Hannah had an intimate relationship with not one but two of the Bastendorf brothers. Zeverine Bastendorf lied to you about his relationship with Hannah Dobbs. Peter confirmed it. And if he will lie under oath once, might he be lying about more? Might he have given the items to Hannah Dobbs after killing Miss Hacker himself? And Mary Bastendorf, a landlady who knows nothing of her guests? What kind of landlady admits to that? What secret is she hiding? I believe there has been more evidence proving the Bastendorf's involvement in this crime than of Miss Dobbs, a poor, defenseless woman who was just trying to earn a wage. I ask you to find her not guilty. Mr. Smith, the prosecution's closing statement. Thank you, Your Honor. The evidence of this case points in a singular direction, and that direction is guilt. We already know Hannah Dobbs is a criminal. 
The prisoner is serving time for one crime as she's being charged with another. Does wickedness not beget more wickedness? Hannah Dobbs was the only person home with Matilda Hacker during the time of the murder, and it is well known that she was then in possession of Miss Hacker's things. This circumstantial evidence alone is enough to establish guilt. If there is no suggestion of death other than natural causes, why was the body taken to a cellar to rot? Why was a rope tied around her neck? We've heard testimony that she alone was home to commit the crime, which I remind you was both brutal and terrible. We cannot let a killer leave this court a free woman, for our safety and for the safety of our children. Thank you, Mr. Smith. I ask the jury to make their decision now, and to ensure that their decision is rooted in the facts of this case. We find her not guilty. And you're all in agreement? We are. This court finds Hannah Dobbs not guilty of the murder of Matilda Hacker. The jury determined there wasn't enough evidence to convict, but Hannah Dobbs was not a free woman yet. She was still serving time for petty theft. On August 8, 1879, three months after the trial, Hannah Dobbs was finally released from her cell. Having received so much attention from the hacker case, crowds gathered at the prison to watch her leave. Peter Bastendorf was among them. It remains unknown why he attended the release. Well, neither he nor anyone else got to speak with Hannah. The guards pressed through the crowds and brought her straight into a carriage that whisked her away. It's assumed that Hannah went home to Biddeford to step out of the spotlight for a while. But Hannah Dobbs was by no means gone from the public eye for good. She was still determined to tell her story, and the press was eager to pay for it. It was fall 1879. The headline in all the papers read, Hannah Dobbs, Further Revelations. The short article was published and paid for by newspaper publisher George Perkis before it was syndicated to nearly every major publication in the country. It teased the upcoming release of a tell-all autobiography by Hannah Dobbs, also published by George Perkis. The article promised that the upcoming memoir would be filled with sensational allegations of Hannah Dobbs' time at 4 Euston Square. According to her, there was not one death at 4 Euston Square, but three, and that one of the murder victims was a child. Upon the release of the article, crowds flocked back to 4 Euston Square, feeding on the twisted media frenzy. Once again, they were ruining the Bastendorf's business and way of life. Desperate to put an end to the publicity, Zeverine went to George Perkis's office and demanded a copy of the forthcoming manuscript. Perkis obliged. To Zeverine's horror, what he read was just as sensational as the papers promised. The full title was Euston Square Mystery, extraordinary statement made by Hannah Dobbs containing her life and early career, history of Miss Hacker while in Euston Square, Harrowing details, story of the murder. Hannah Dobbs' name was featured in large, bold letters, and her portrait occupied more than half of the page. Inside, Hannah Dobbs told all. As she explained it, her affair with Zeverine Bastendorf began prior to her working at 4 Euston Square. She didn't know of his wife, Mary Bastendorf, 
until Zeverine hired Hannah as a maid at 4 Euston Square. While the revelation that her lover was married came as a surprise, Hannah continued the affair anyway. The Bastendorf slept in the large front bedroom on the top floor, and Hannah slept in the back one with the children. Zeverine Bastendorf would visit Hannah's bed when both Mary and the children were asleep. In January 1877, she had become pregnant, but not with Peter Bastendorf's child. According to Hannah, the child was Zeverine's. When she told Zeverine Bastendorf about the child, he told her not to worry and that she would want for nothing. Hannah's relationship with Peter Bastendorf was a calculated one, made in order to claim someone else as the father, and entirely unbeknownst to Peter. If Mary found out about the baby, she would become suspicious, so Zeverine made Peter a key so that he could let himself in at night to see Hannah. When the baby came, everyone would assume that it was his. Hannah had never actually had the baby, though. She lost the pregnancy due to illness. As for Mr. Finlay, Hannah had a lot to say. She spoke of Mr. Finlay's great wealth and even implied that Zeverine killed Mr. Finlay for his money. She became suspicious when after Mr. Finlay supposedly left the house, Zeverine gave her a watch and chain that belonged to him. Hannah also claimed that Mary Bastendorf and Matilda Hacker had been friends. They had spent evenings together drinking and sharing stories over photo albums. The broken lamp that was found in Matilda Hacker's room? Hannah said that Matilda Hacker had knocked it over herself. When Hannah was cleaning up its pieces, she cut herself, but Hannah insisted that at the time there was no stain in the room. It had to have come later. One morning, Zeverine Bastendorf interrupted Hannah's cleaning to demand that she fetch Matilda Hacker's rent. The demand was curt and abrasive. When Matilda Hacker didn't have proper change to pay her rent, she took a five-pound note from beneath her petticoat, remarking how smart she was for keeping her wealth in a place that nobody would look. While leaving the house to get change for Matilda, Hannah made a comment to Zeverine Bastendorf about Matilda Hacker's large sum of cash and alluded to its funny location. Shortly after, Hannah went to Hampstead with the Bastendorf children. It was only when she returned that Mary Bastendorf told Hannah that Matilda Hacker had left the house. Hannah added that Mr. Ross, who took Matilda Hacker's room, said that he had found a revolver lying in the water closet on the second floor. It was after this scare with the revolver, Hannah said, that Zeverine Bastendorf gave her another gold watch and chain, this time the one that belonged to Matilda Hacker. He gave her this gift on one condition. She could not tell anyone where she received it. If anyone asked, she was to say that it was from her uncle who had passed. Later, Zeverine asked Hannah to pawn it and loan him the money. He said he would get her a less old-fashioned one. While she stopped short of explicitly placing blame, Hannah's allegations were clear. Zeverine Bastendorf had killed Matilda Hacker, stolen her money and watch, and left her corpse in the cellar to rot. And this was not the only damning allegation in Hannah's expose. She wrote how she once found a small, scared boy hiding in a small storage space in the backyard. When she alerted others, 
they just prodded him with a bamboo stick until he tried to flee. At that point, they ran after him and repeatedly struck the boy over the head with an iron poker. Hannah claimed she was told not to get a doctor. When the boy died, his clothes were burned and his remains were fed to Mr. Riggenbach's dog. In another section, Hannah claimed that at one point during her employment, Joseph Bastendorf, another one of Zeverine's brothers, acquired a young dog that they tortured and skinned alive. In these two stories, though, she did not give out the specific identities of those involved. Hannah claimed the Bastendorfs threatened her into silence. That was the only reason that she stayed. They told her that if she went to the police, she would be implicated in the crime because they had her pawn Matilda Hacker's things and that she would appear guilty. Hannah also said that her affair with Zeverine didn't end when she left for Euston Square. She claimed that while she wanted to break the relationship off, she was too dependent on the Bastendorf's finances to do so. She continued to see Zeverine out of necessity, though she regretted it deeply. While Hannah's story was not an admission of guilt, she was by no means innocent either. She positioned herself as the unwitting accomplice, manipulated and tricked into participating due to her dire circumstances. Zeverine Bastendorf immediately filed a libel suit against George Perkis. He insisted that the story was pure fiction, lies and slander and nothing more. They had no right to publish it. But the story was too good, and the potential profits were too large for George Perkis to roll over. He fought back with a lawsuit of his own against Zeverine Bastendorf, accusing him of perjury. Unfortunately for Zeverine, George Perkis had the resources to build a damning case. He tracked down the landlady of the Red Lion Inn, the same inn that Zeverine claimed to have never entered. The landlady, Mrs. Carpenter, remembered Hannah Dobbs visiting her inn with a man and was willing to testify to it in court. Can you point to the man? He's sitting right there. You are testifying that Zeverine Bastendorf visited your inn with Hannah Dobbs? Yes. Zeverine was found guilty of perjury and sentenced to 12 months imprisonment with hard labor. Hannah Dobbs' tell-all story went to press and was a wild success. Her face could be seen on newsstands across the country for weeks. From prison, Zeverine Bastendorf went after George Perkis for ruining his reputation and his business. They eventually settled the case out of court. Zeverine was awarded 500 pounds. Well, at the time, 500 pounds was considered a small fortune. Yet, in the wake of all that they had been through, even a small fortune was unable to rebuild the Bastendorf family. The rest of their lives were haunted by the death of Matilda Hacker, the stress of the cases, and Zeverine's time spent in prison. The shadow around four Euston Square never lifted. As Zeverine aged, he began hearing voices. Perhaps as a result of the stress, he spent much of the rest of his life in mental institutions. On more than one occasion, he was placed there by his own wife, Mary Bastendorf, who feared for her children's safety. As for Hannah Dobbs, 
After publishing her manuscript, she disappeared into obscurity. To this day, the unsolved case lives on in stories told around the world. Its colorful characters and dramatic turns have inspired a number of plays and novels. The halls of 4 Euston Square are still considered by many to be haunted by its ghosts. Though the building has since become student housing for a university and has been renamed Ensley Gardens, an attempt to escape the burdens of its past. So what do you think, Carter? Who killed Matilda Hacker? That's hard to say. There are so many different sides of the story, and so much of the evidence used in court seems to be based on hearsay. And to make things worse, the doctors weren't even convinced that it was murder. Oh, I'm convinced it was a murder. Yeah, I am too. But I don't think I'm confident in my choice for the killer. Uh, if I were forced to make sense of it all, I would say Zeverine Bastendorf is the most likely suspect. Hannah Dobbs' autobiography was sensationalized for audiences, but I do think there is more than a shred of truth in there. And we know that despite having a successful business, Zeverine was a gambler and had to borrow money on more than one occasion. I'd say he killed Mr. Finlay for his money, like Hannah Dobbs said. Then, after he got away with one murder, it was easier to kill again. He found out about the wealth that Matilda Hacker kept on her, and he acted. I agree, but I don't think Zeverine was acting alone. I think Hannah may have been more involved than she'd admitted. The Bastendorfs were quick to throw her under the bus as the only guilty party, which might have been the reason that her revenge was so swift and singular. She was hurt by the dismissal she received from Zeverine Bastendorf, a man that she had a long and significant affair with. Not to mention, I think Mary Bastendorf also knew more than she let on. It's possible the whole house knew more. Too bad the dead can't speak. I think they'd have a lot to say. Unfortunately, anyone who took part in the deadly happenings of 4 Euston Square brought their secrets to the grave. And the truth of what happened behind closed doors will be hidden in the shadows of its hallways forever. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easier for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Unsolved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Connor Sampson, with writing assistance by Drew Cole. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Jerry Courtney Osteen, Mike Capozzi, Susanna Corrington, Sky King, Harris Markson, and Jack Shulruff. 
It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. <laughs> 